Chapter 19 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 19. Chapter 19. Tabooed Acts. 1. Taboos on Intercourse with Strangers. So much for the primitive conceptions of the soul and the dangers to which it is exposed. These conceptions are not limited to one people or country. With variations of detail, they are found all over the world and survive, as we have seen, in modern Europe. Beliefs so deep-seated and so widespread must necessarily have contributed to shape the mold in which the early kingship was cast. For if every person was at such pains to save his own soul from the perils which threatened it on so many sides, how much more carefully must he have been guarded, upon whose life hung the welfare and even the existence of the whole people, and whom, therefore, it was the common interest of all to preserve. Therefore, we should expect to find the king's life protected by a system of precautions or safeguards still more numerous and minute than those which in primitive society every man adopts for the safety of his own soul. Now, in point of fact, the life of early kings is regulated, as we have seen and shall see more fully presently, by a very exact code of rules. May we not then conjecture that these rules are, in fact, the very safeguards which we should expect to find adopted for the protection of the king's life? An examination of the rules themselves confirms this conjecture. For from this it appears that some of the rules observed by the kings are identical with those observed by private persons out of regard for the safety of their souls. And even those which seem peculiar to the king, many, if not all, are most readily explained on the hypothesis that they are nothing but safeguards or lifeguards of the king. I will now enumerate some of these royal rules or taboos, offering on each of them such comments and explanations as may serve to set the original intention of the rule in its proper light. As the object of the royal taboos is to isolate the king from all sources of danger, their general effect is to compel him to live in a state of seclusion, more or less complete, according to the number and stringency of the rules he observes. Now, of all the sources of danger, none are more dreaded by the savage than magic and witchcraft, and he suspects all strangers of practicing these black arts. To guard against the baneful influence exerted voluntarily or involuntarily by strangers is therefore an elementary dictate of savage prudence. Hence, before strangers are allowed to enter a district, or at least before they are permitted to mingle freely with the inhabitants, Certain ceremonies are often performed by the natives of the country for the purpose of disarming the strangers of their magical powers, of counteracting the baneful influence which is believed to emanate from them, or of disinfecting, so to speak, the tainted atmosphere by which they are supposed to be surrounded. Thus, when the ambassadors sent by Justin II, Emperor of the East, to conclude a peace with the Turks had reached their destination, they were received by shamans, who subjected them to a ceremonial purification for the purpose of exercising all harmful influence. Having deposited the goods brought by the ambassadors in an open place, 
These wizards carried burning branches of incense round them, while they rang a bell and beat on a tambourine, snorting and falling into a state of frenzy in their efforts to dispel the powers of evil. Afterwards, they purified the ambassadors themselves by leading them through the flames. In the island of Nanumea, South Pacific, strangers from ships or from other islands were not allowed to communicate with the people until they all, or a few as representatives of the rest, had been taken to each of the four temples in the island, and prayers offered that the god would avert any disease or treachery which these strangers might have brought with them. Meat offerings were also laid upon the altars, accompanied by songs and dances in honor of the god. While these ceremonies were going on, all the people except the priests and their attendants kept out of sight. Amongst the Otdanams of Borneo, it is the custom that strangers entering the territory should pay to the natives a certain sum, which is spent in the sacrifice of buffaloes or pigs to the spirits of the land and water, in order to reconcile them to the presence of the strangers, and to induce them not to withdraw their favor from the people of the country, but to bless the rice harvest, and so forth. Men of a certain district in Borneo, fearing to look upon a European traveller lest he should make them ill, warned their wives and children not to go near him. Those who could not restrain their curiosity killed fowls to appease the evil spirits, and smeared themselves with the blood. More dreaded, says the traveller in central Borneo, than the evil spirits of the neighbourhood are the evil spirits from a distance which accompany travellers. When a company from the middle Mahakam River visited me along the Blue Ukayans in the year 1897, no woman showed herself outside her house without a burning bundle of plehiding bark, the stinking smoke of which drives away evil spirits. When Curveau was travelling in South America, he entered a village of the Apalai Indians. A few moments after his arrival, some of the Indians brought him a number of large black ants, of a species whose bite is painful, fastened on palm leaves. Then all the people of the village, without distinction of age or sex, presented themselves to him, and he had to sting them all with the ants on their faces, thighs, and other parts of their bodies. Sometimes, when he applied the ants too tenderly, they called out, More! More! and were not satisfied till their skin was thickly studded with tiny swellings, like what might have been produced by whipping them with nettles. The object of this ceremony is made plain by the custom observed in Amboina and Uleus of sprinkling sick people with pungent spices, such as ginger and cloves, chewed fine, in order by the prickling sensation to drive away the demon of disease which may be clinging to their persons. In Java, a popular cure for gout or rheumatism is to rub Spanish pepper into the nails of the fingers and toes of the sufferer. The pungency of the pepper is supposed to be too much for the gout or rheumatism, who accordingly departs in haste. So on the slave coast, the mother of sick child sometimes believes that an evil spirit has taken possession of the child's body, and in order to drive him out, she makes small cuts in the body of the little sufferer and inserts green peppers or spices in the wound, believing that she will thereby hurt the evil spirit and force him to be gone. The poor child naturally screams with pain, but the mother hardens her heart in the belief that the demon is suffering equally. It is probable that the same dread of strangers, rather than any desire to do them honor, 
is the motive of certain ceremonies which are sometimes observed at their reception, but of which the intention is not directly stated. In the Ong Tong Java Islands, which are inhabited by Polynesians, the priests or sorcerers seem to wield great influence. Their main business is to summon or exercise spirits for the purpose of averting or dispelling sickness, and of procuring favorable winds, a good catch of fish, and so on. When strangers land on the islands, they are first of all received by the sorcerers, sprinkled with water, anointed with oil, and girt with dried pandanus leaves. At the same time, sand and water are freely thrown about in all directions, and the newcomer and his boat are wiped with green leaves. After this ceremony, the strangers are introduced by the sorcerers to the chief. In Afghanistan, and in some parts of Persia, the traveler, before he enters a village, is frequently received with the sacrifice of animal life or food, or of fire and incense. The Afghan boundary mission, in passing by villages in Afghanistan, was often met with fire and incense. Sometimes a tray of lighted embers is thrown under the hoofs of the traveler's horse with the words, You are welcome. On entering a village in Central Africa, Emin Pasha was received with the sacrifice of two goats. Their blood was sprinkled on the path, and the chief stepped over the blood to greet Emin. Sometimes the dread of strangers and their magic is too great to allow of their reception on any terms. Thus, when Speke arrived at a certain village, the natives shut their doors against him, because they had never before seen a white man, nor the tin boxes that the men were carrying. Who knows, they said, but that these very boxes are the plundering Watuta transformed and come to kill us. You cannot be admitted. No persuasion could avail with them, and the party had to proceed to the next village. The fear thus entertained of alien visitors is often mutual. Entering a strange land, the savage feels that he is treading enchanted ground, and he takes steps to guard against the demons that haunt it and the magical arts of its inhabitants. Thus, on going to a strange land, the Maoris performed certain ceremonies to make it common, lest it might have been previously sacred. When Baron Miklucho Makle was approaching a village on the Makle coast of New Guinea, one of the natives who accompanied him broke a branch from a tree, and, going aside, whispered to it for a while. Then stepping up to each member of the party, one after another, he spat something upon his back and gave him some blows with the branch. Lastly, he went into the forest and buried the branch under withered leaves in the thickest part of the jungle. This ceremony was believed to protect the party against all treachery and danger in the village they were approaching. The idea, probably, was that the malignant influences were drawn off from the persons into the branch and buried with it in the depths of the forest. In Australia, when a strange tribe has been invited into a district and is approaching the encampment of the tribe which owns the land, the strangers carry lighted bark or burning sticks in their hands for the purpose, they say, of clearing and purifying the air. When the Torajas are on a head-hunting expedition and have entered the enemy's country, they may not eat any fruits which the foe has planted, nor any animal which he has reared until they have first committed an act of hostility, as by burning a house or killing a man. They think if they broke this rule, they would receive something of the soul or spiritual essence of the enemy into themselves, which would destroy the mystic virtue of their talismans. Again, 
It is believed that a man who has been on a journey may have contracted some magic evil from the strangers with whom he has associated. Hence, on returning home, before he is readmitted to the society of his tribe and friends, he has to undergo certain purificatory ceremonies. Thus the Bichuanans cleanse or purify themselves after journeys by shaving their heads, etc., lest they should have contracted from strangers some evil by witchcraft or sorcery. In some parts of Western Africa, when a man returns home after a long absence, before he is allowed to visit his wife, he must wash his person with a particular fluid and receive from the sorcerer a certain mark on his forehead in order to counteract any magic spell which a stranger woman may have cast on him in his absence and which might be communicated through him to the women of the village. Two Hindu ambassadors, who had been sent to England by a native prince, and had returned to India, were considered to have so polluted themselves by contact with strangers that nothing but being born again could restore them to purity. For the reason of regeneration, it is directed to make an image of pure gold of the female power of nature, in the shape either of a woman or of a cow. In this statue, the person to be regenerated is enclosed and dragged through the usual channel. As a statue of pure gold and of proper dimensions would be too expensive, it is sufficient to make an image of the sacred yoni, through which the person to be regenerated is to pass. Such an image of pure gold was made at the prince's command, and his ambassadors were born again by being dragged through it. When precautions like these are taken on behalf of the people in general against the malignant influence supposed to be exercised by strangers, it is no wonder that special measures are adopted to protect the king from the same insidious danger. In the Middle Ages, the envoys who visited a Tartar Khan were obliged to pass between two fires before they were admitted to his presence, and the gifts they brought were also carried between the fires. The reason assigned for the custom was that the fire purged away any magic influence which the strangers might mean to exercise over the Khan. When subject chiefs come with their retinues to visit Kalamba, the most powerful chief of the Bashilange in the Congo Basin, for the first time, or after being rebellious, they have to bathe men and women together in two brooks on two successive days, passing the nights under the open sky in the marketplace. After the second bath, they proceed, entirely naked, to the house of Kalamba, who makes a long white mark on the breast and forehead of each of them. Then they return to the marketplace and dress, after which they undergo the pepper ordeal. Pepper is dropped into the eyes of each of them, and while this is being done, the sufferer has to make a confession of all his sins, to answer all questions that may be put to him, and to take certain vows. This ends the ceremony, and the strangers are now free to take up their quarters in the town for as long as they choose to remain. 2. Taboos on Eating and Drinking In the opinion of savages, the acts of eating and drinking are attended with special danger, for at these times the soul may escape from the mouth or be extracted by the magic arts of an enemy present. Among the you-speaking people of the slave coast, the common belief seems to be that the indwelling spirit leaves the body and returns to it through the mouth. Hence, should it have gone out, it behooves a man to be careful about opening his mouth, lest a homeless spirit should take advantage of the opportunity and enter his body. 
This, it appears, is considered most likely to take place while the man is eating. Precautions are therefore adopted to guard against these dangers. Thus of the Batoks it is said that, since the soul can leave the body, they can always take care to prevent their soul from straying on occasions when they have most need of it. But it is only possible to prevent the soul from straying when one is in the house. At feasts one may find the whole house shut up in order that the soul may stay and enjoy the good things set before it. The Zafi Manalo in Madagascar lock their doors when they eat, and hardly anyone ever sees them eating. The Warua will not allow anyone to see them eating or drinking, being doubly particular that no person of the opposite sex shall see them doing so. I had to pay a man to let me see him drink. I could not make a man let a woman see him drink. When offered a drink, they often ask that a cloth be held up to hide them whilst drinking. If these are the ordinary precautions taken by common people, the precautions taken by kings are extraordinary. The king of Loango may not be seen eating or drinking by man or beast under pain of death. A favorite dog, having broken into the room where the king was dining, the king ordered it to be killed on the spot. Once the king's own son, a boy of twelve years old, inadvertently saw the king drink. Immediately the king ordered him to be finely apparelled and feasted, after which he commanded him to be cut in quarters and carried about the city with the proclamation that he had seen the king drink. When the king has a mind to drink, he has a cup of wine brought. He that brings it has a bell in his hand, and as soon as he has delivered the cup to the king, he turns his face from him and rings the bell, on which all present fall down with their faces to the ground and continue so till the king has drank. His eating is much in the same style, for which he has a house on purpose where his victuals are set upon a bensa or table, which he goes to and shuts the door. When he has done, he knocks and comes out, so that none ever see the king eat or drink. For it is believed that if anyone should, the king shall immediately die. The remnants of his food are buried, doubtless to prevent them from falling into the hands of sorcerers, who by means of these fragments might cast a fatal spell over the monarch. The rules observed by the neighboring king of Kakongo were similar. It was thought that the king would die if any of his subjects were to see him drink. It is a capital offense to see the king of Dahomey at his meals. When he drinks in public, as he does on extraordinary occasions, he hides himself behind a curtain, or handkerchiefs are held up round his head, and all the people throw themselves with their faces to the earth. When the king of Bonyoro in central Africa went to drink milk in the dairy, every man must leave the royal enclosure, and all the women had to cover their heads till the king returned. No one might see him drink. One wife accompanied him to the dairy and handed him a milk pot, but she turned away her face while he drained it. 3. Taboos on Showing the Face In some of the preceding cases, the intention of eating and drinking in strict seclusion may perhaps be to hinder evil influences from entering the body, rather than prevent the escape of the soul. This certainly is the motive of some drinking customs observed by natives of the Congo region. Thus we are told of these people that there is hardly a native who would dare swallow a liquid without first conjuring the spirits. One of them rings a bell all the time he is drinking. 
Another crouches down and places his left hand on the earth. Another veils his head. Another puts a stalk of grass or a leaf in his hair, or marks his forehead with a line of clay. This fetish custom assumes very varied forms. To explain them, the black is satisfied to say that they are an energetic mode of conjuring spirits. In this part of the world, a chief will commonly ring a bell at each draught of beer which he swallows, and at the same moment a lad stationed in front of him brandishes a spear to keep at bay the spirits which may try to sneak into the old chief's body by the same road as the beer. The same motive of warding off evil spirits probably explains the custom observed by some African sultans of veiling their faces. The sultan of Darfur wraps up his face with a piece of white muslin, which goes round his head several times, covering his mouth and nose first, and then his forehead, so that only his eyes are visible. The same custom of veiling the face as a mark of sovereignty is said to be observed in other parts of Central Africa. The Sultan of Wadai always speaks from behind a curtain. No one sees his face except his intimates and a few favored persons. 4. Taboos on quitting the house. By an extension of the like precaution, kings are sometimes forbidden ever to leave their palaces, or, if they are allowed to do so, their subjects are forbidden to see them abroad. The fetish king of Benin, who is worshipped as a deity by his subjects, might not quit his palace. After his coronation, the king of Loango is confined to his palace, which he may not leave. The king of Onitsha does not step out of his house into the town unless a human sacrifice is made to propitiate the gods. On this account, he never goes out beyond the precincts of his premises. Indeed, we are told that he may not quit his palace under pain of death or of giving up one or more slaves to be executed in his presence. As the wealth of the country is measured in slaves, the king takes good care not to infringe the law. Yet once a year, at the Feast of Yams, the king is allowed, and even required by custom, to dance before his people outside the high mud wall of the palace. In dancing, he carries a great weight, generally a sack of earth, on his back to prove that he is still able to support the burden and cares of state. Were he unable to discharge this duty, he would be immediately deposed and perhaps stoned. The kings of Ethiopia were worshipped as gods, but were mostly kept shut up in their palaces. On the mountainous coast of Pontus, there dwelt in antiquity a rude and warlike people named the Mosni, or Mosinosi, through whose rugged country the ten thousand marched on their famous retreat from Asia to Europe. These barbarians kept their king in close custody at the top of a high tower, from which, after his election, he was never more allowed to descend. Here he dispensed justice to his people, but if he offended them, they punished him by stopping his rations for a whole day, or even starving him to death. The kings of Sabena, or Sheba, the spice country of Arabia, were not allowed to go out of their palaces. If they did so, the mob stoned them to death. But at the top of the palace there was a window with a chain attached to it. If any man deemed he had suffered wrong, he pulled the chain, and the king perceived him, and called him in, and gave judgment. 5. Taboos on leaving food over 
Again, magic mischief may be wrought upon a man through the remains of the food he has partaken of, or the dishes out of which he has eaten. On the principles of sympathetic magic, a real connection continues to subsist between the food which a man has in his stomach and the refuse of it which he has left untouched, and hence by injuring the refuse you can simultaneously injure the eater. Among the Naranieri of South Australia, every adult is constantly on the lookout for bones of beasts, birds, or fish, of which the flesh has been eaten by somebody, in order to construct a deadly charm out of them. Everyone is therefore careful to burn the bones of the animals which he has eaten, lest they should fall into the hands of a sorcerer. Too often, however, the sorcerer succeeds in getting hold of such a bone, and when he does so, he believes that he has the power of life and death over the man, woman, or child who ate the flesh of the animal. To put the charm in operation, he makes a paste of red ochre and fish oil, inserts in it the eye of a cod and a small piece of the flesh of a corpse, and having rolled the compound into a ball, sticks it on top of the bone. After being left for some time in the bosom of a dead body, in order that it may derive a deadly potency by contact with corruption, the magical implement is set up in the ground near the fire, and as the ball melts, so the person against whom the charm is directed wastes with disease. If the ball is melted quite away, the victim will die. When the bewitched man learns of the spell that is being cast upon him, he endeavors to buy the bone from the sorcerer, and if he obtains it, he breaks the charm by throwing the bone into a river or lake. In Tana, one of the new Hebrides, people bury or throw into the sea the leavings of their food, lest these should fall into the hands of the disease-makers. For if a disease-maker finds the remnants of a meal, say, the skin of a banana, he picks it up and burns it slowly in the fire. As it burns, the person who ate the banana falls ill and sends to the disease-maker, offering him presents if he will stop burning the banana skin. In New Guinea, the natives take the utmost care to destroy or conceal the husks and other remains of their food, lest these should be found by their enemies and used by them for the injury or destruction of the eaters. Hence, they burn their leavings, throw them into the sea, or otherwise put them out of harm's way. From a like fear, no doubt, of sorcery, no one may touch the food which the king of Loango leaves upon his plate. It is buried in a hole in the ground, and no one may drink out of the king's vessel. In antiquity, the Romans used immediately to break the shells of eggs and of snails which they had eaten, in order to prevent enemies from making magic with them. The common practice, still observed among us, of breaking eggshells after the eggs have been eaten, may very well have originated in the same superstition. The superstitious fear of the magic that may be wrought on a man through the leavings of his food has had beneficial effect of inducing many savages to destroy refuse, which, if left to rot, might through its corruption have provided a real, not a merely imaginary, source of disease and death. Nor is it only the sanitary condition of a tribe which has benefited by this superstition. Curiously enough, the same baseless dread, the same false notion of causation, has indirectly strengthened the moral bonds of hospitality, honor, and good faith among men who entertain it. For it is obvious that no one who intends to harm a man by working magic on the refuse of his food will himself partake of that food.
because if he did so he would on the principles of sympathetic magic suffer equally with his enemy from any injury done to the refuse this is the idea which in primitive society lends sanctity to the bond produced by eating together by participation in the same food two men give as it were hostages for their good behavior each guarantees the other that he will devise no mischief against him since being physically united with him by the common food in their stomachs any harm he might do to his fellow would recoil on his own head with precisely the same force with which it fell on the head of his victim in strict logic however the sympathetic bond lasts only so long as the food is in the stomach of each of the parties hence the covenant formed by eating together is less solemn and durable than the covenant formed by transfusing the blood of the covenating parties into each other's veins for this transfusion seems to knit them together for life end of chapter nineteen